Welcome to another episode of Laws and Grace. Super excited. Today, I have an old friend of mine from early college days, Melissa Miller. Um, welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thank you. I am super excited. Like I mentioned, earlier, you've been on my mind as far as people that I would love to have on the podcast to share kind of your experience. Um, and I know like it's been, oh my goodness, years since we kindled our friendship, but I remember, uh, you know, we connected instantly and just this authentic, genuine um, friendship, just like right off the bat. And I just remember being so impressed with who you were and your vulnerability and your bravery. So I'm really excited to hear about kind of what life has been like for you for the last couple of years and the things you've experienced. Um, so just by way of introduction for our listeners. So Melissa is a wife and mother of five. She has four wild boys and one very spoiled baby girl bringing up the caboose. Lucky girl. Um, she is a passionate and very talented self-taught lady carpenter. So I'm excited to hear about that. Um, and a former owner of your own LLC business, which shipped successfully nationwide. I uh, follow you on Instagram with that and I saw some of the, your projects you've done and you are very, very talented. So Thank excited you. to hear a little bit more about that. Um, she's a self-love advocate, certified life coach, hopeful. Does that mean you're not a certified life coach yet, but want not to be? Yeah, not yet. So I am getting trained. Um, and then I'm going to go in for yeah my certification, but okay. heaven knows when that will be. Awesome. So there's another path we can take as far as discussions. We got lots we can talk about tonight. Yes. Um, and then this, you said um, you're cautiously navigating a faith crisis, which is only deepening her love and her, for and her relationship with Christ. Um, and I, that is very tender and beautiful to my soul right now. So I, I, I good. Your, good. your vulnerability there. Um, and today you're going to talk with us about your life story uh, from childhood trauma um, that severed your understanding and love the Lord had for you, for you um, through hard trials thereafter and throughout your life, including being an amputee survivor. Um, you found what you described as the the true love of Christ and, or of, of God, of like God's love for you and um, the, the meaning and richness of the atonement. So mm -hmm. Melissa, there's a thousand things that we could, <laughs> we could jump into here from, you know, being a lady carpenter to yes. life coach, to your amputee, to your faith crisis. Um, is there anything you'd like to add to your bio or, or let our listeners know? No, I mean, I'm probably one of the wonders of the world, according to some people, but <laughs> that, that may have come as a, a negative connotation, but I'll take it. <laughs> I will take it. But no, I do eat plant-based, so you can add that. Okay. Um, I'm not a strict vegan, but it's kind of just all part of my story. And, and it just, it's all connected in a weird, wonderful, delightful way that has served me and I just, I love my story. I'm at a place where I can truly love my story, even in the harder times, because um, life's not perfect, as we know. Um, but I think I feel a pretty good um, 
understanding of myself and I love it so far. And I, I look forward to what else God has planned to help me bloom. So, oh, if that so helps. Cool. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I love so, that I love my story. Yeah, like, I think that's, that gives me goosebumps. So let's, let's talk about it. Let's, what's your story? What's your experience? Okay, so it's funny that you say, I love my story, because I do. But I guess I should start with my story started with me hating myself and it hate, I hated my life. I was not a happy person. Um, so when you and I met, I, I needed you in my life. <laughs> um, cause it was not okay. I was not okay back then. And I tried to be the reason I was so bubbly and happy was because I was out of the household that I was raised in. And I found that freedom that a lot of people, a lot of our friends at BYU had found and maybe have gotten in trouble for, but I, I have found that authentic, fresh of breath. What am I trying to say? Breath of fresh air. And, and I met you and I was like, my soul has just ignited again. And I felt like I had lost that a long, long, long time ago. Um, so just a very watered down version, because I can talk about this forever, but I am a sexual abuse survivor and I'm only just getting comfortable telling people that because there is a stigma, unfortunately, to those that have been sexually molested or raped or anything under that umbrella. Um, and I fell victim to the stigma and I kept silent and tried to have a normal life, quote unquote. Um, but the reality was I grew up at a very young age, very quickly, and my rose-colored glasses were broken at age six. And my abuse continued for a couple of years by multiple abusers. And so I hated my life story. I hated growing up with the stigma. I hated growing up with the trauma. But what I hated most was, was two, there was two things that I hated most. One, that no one else around me understood where, where life was for me. They didn't understand that I, I couldn't get caught up in the petty stuff. I couldn't get caught up in name brands or popularity contests or anything like that because I had already grown up. And all of that was very immature to me, even though that was, you know, standard age stuff. <laughs> and so I really, I hated that I couldn't really be like my peers and in a way felt so much older than them, even though I wasn't. Um, the second thing I absolutely hated, and this is where my story kind of really took off, was I hated God for allowing that to happen to me. I despised him. And that, that hate hard um it started at a very young age I can't tell you what age it just kind of all mushed together but it was around age eight when as LDS I'm I'm um uh I don't even know how to say it anymore LDS a Latter-day Saint and um at age eight as we know that's a big age that's when we get to get baptized and get clean from all of our sins and have the atonement in our lives and the spirit. And 
I was stepping up to a gate <laughs> where what happened to me, I was dirty. According to the standards of the culture of the church, I was dirty, I was broken, and no amount of baptismal water would clean me. Now that was my perception. Of course, that is not reality, but I didn't know that at age eight. And so I got baptized and I just went through the works. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything I felt like I needed in my life. I did it so that I didn't get judged for not doing it, essentially. <laughs> and it only worsened my understanding of God because all of my friends who were eight and were choosing to get baptized, they, they were already clean. They didn't, they didn't have any sins, right? And, and in my mind, I had sinned because I had allowed people to hurt me, even though that's not the case. I got threatened and all that fun stuff. But um, anyway, so then at church, growing up into young women's, when you hear about chastity, and the law of cleanliness and how your husband won't want you if, if you were pretty much sexualized in any way or, or sexual in any way. And I just didn't know enough to know that it wasn't my choice. I didn't know that all I knew in my heart and what now I know is the adversary saying, no man will want you. God couldn't even save you from it. So clearly he doesn't like you. I mean, I could go on anyway. So I was not well throughout high school. In fact, I remember specifically, and I regret it now, but of course it's now part of my story. So I do love it that I get to learn from it. But in high school, I had never told a soul. My husband knows, but I didn't tell a soul, but, um, I hated my life so much that I started acting like those that I wanted to be like. I, I started obsessing over my friends' lives who had, you know, the, the life I wanted, the, the family life that I wanted and, and the attitude and the personality and all around anything, anything to not be me. I would, um, you know, I would start doing some of their quirky things, right? I would smile the way that they smiled. I would say things the way they, they would say things. I would well and truly disassociate myself from myself. And <laughs> I hate it now because I really wish I could get to know the person that I was meant to be in high school, but I wasn't, I wasn't her. I, I'll, I'll spare names. You guys don't know them, but, but there was three people in high school that I just, I had to be like, and, and then hate God even more that why didn't you give me their life? I don't understand why I couldn't have ended up like them. They are pure. They're perfect. They have no heavy hearts. They, they still are wearing the rose colored glasses that I don't, so desperately want back why why god like i don't understand why do you hate me so much and i mean anyway so there were times where i was not immune to the spirit i i did feel the spirit throughout my journey um 
but it, it meant nothing to me in some well, you know, I'm like, oh, that was a good feeling or glad I chose that. I, I tried. Um, I went to church out of just the emotion of going to church as to not have my family judge me or people judge me or whatever. And which is very common, mm -hmm. but I just didn't want to deal with one more thing that my friends could judge me for or or was different than my friends so it was I started coming to life after BYU I really kind of started feeling myself of like hey you are fun and bubbly this is fun like this is you I met you Grace and I was like I love the connection that we made like I for once feel like the person I was supposed to be, which is fun and bubbly and didn't care a damn what people thought and just had fun. So when BYU days for me ended, because I was only a visiting student, um, I did it for my mother. I didn't know how to do the whole college scene. <laughs> I didn't have the grades for it. I literally did the visiting student program. And um, it was the day that I left. I came back home and I I broke. I, I completely and utterly broke. And it back to the same antics. I hate God. I hate me. I hate life. <laughs> I don't like, what am I supposed to do? I met my husband soon after, not even two weeks later, met my husband. I was becoming a nun. I'm going to make that very clear. <laughs> I was not getting married. I had I was so traumatized by what happened to me and I love my family, but they are not one to openly talk about sex and, or anything. <laughs> so, so I should have known more, but my trauma blocked a lot. I, I will say I was never raped. So I never had the true understanding of what sex was not that that's the way to learn, but that's all I could pull from. And even that I had nothing. And so, um, so when I met my husband, I was like, you don't understand. I'm not getting married. It's not happening. I'm not having the sex talk. I'm not having sex in general. <laughs> I'm becoming a nun. <laughs> so, um, my husband has, he was, he was one of the biggest breaks in spirituality that I had knowing that God actually does love me. He sent Jason. It was a blind date. We were not set up. It was, he crashed my, my friend's blind date. My friend then had to find a replacement and I was it. And that's a story for another day. <laughs> so I met my husband and I felt very strongly. You're marrying this man. The day of our date that I wasn't supposed to be on. <laughs> you're marrying this man. And of course that spooked me, but my, my soul came alive again. And that was, that was one of those times where I'm like, this is me. This is who Melissa is. He is such a good man. Anyway, so we got married, um, seven months later to like quick, quick, quick. <laughs> and it's been wonderful. I mean, marriage is hard. There's definitely times that I'm like, I think I want to kill you, but that's fine. He's a great man still. <laughs> um, it was, so we got pregnant fairly 
fairly early. We were three months in and we got pregnant. It was sort of planned, not by me, not by my husband, not by God. That story might throw some people under the bus. So I am going to leave that story kind of alone. But the bullet points is I was told by someone who I had a very toxic relationship with, especially a spiritual toxic relationship with, that I was supposed to have a baby fast. And that person decided to use spirituality as a motivation. Um, at the time, it was very toxic. At the time, I didn't question it because I already had God hate me, so I can't deny a baby for him. So we got pregnant very early. Um, I loved my baby. I still do. He's 12 now. <laughs> um, he's a sass, but I love him to death. Um, but at the time when I got pregnant, um, my husband, and he's very open about this, had a pornography problem. We can't say addiction. We don't really know what it was because it wasn't an everyday situation. And, um, but it was definitely a problem. And he was sober for about a year and a half. It was a couple of weeks before I gave birth that he fell back into it. So I am out to here pregnant with a baby I love, but was so unsure about having. <laughs> and I, I just, I fell back deep into the whole, what am I doing? I hate this life. What, you know, and it didn't go away. So my son nearly died from what I now know is a blood disorder. I just recently got diagnosed after my fifth baby um, and after three miscarriages. So he almost died. He came early. It didn't, it didn't end well with my mental health. Um, I fell very deep into postpartum depression that went clinical for two years. And it was really the first time I ever felt like the world doesn't need me. I can't say I was suicidal, but it was the very start of what am I doing here? What am I doing here? The worst part was when my baby was born, the adversary has a very, very good hold on me. And I've always known that. Um, but unfortunately, when my son was born, I don't even know how to explain it because it sounds horrible because I've never heard of anyone else having this experience, but it hurts my heart. But um, the adversary morphed my child's face into one of my abusers. And so I was holding this precious little boy who I was so unsure about having, desperately wanted to love the hell out of him, but I couldn't because he didn't look right. He was my abuser, even though obviously that's not possible. <laughs> it, was, it was my husband's. It was definitely my husband's. If you look at pictures, they are carbon copy of each other. But for me, but for me and whatever mentality that the adversary decided to warp, it warped him into someone that I hadn't seen for years and years and years and years. And so connecting to my child was taken away from me and it was the worst. Now, my son was born right before Christmas. I thought I was going to hate a Christmas baby, but this is another moment where God showed up. Um, 
the only time that I felt like I actually was connecting to my son was at two o'clock in the morning. Each morning when I got up to nurse him, we would, I would take him to a rocking chair I had right in front of the Christmas tree and the Christmas lights were on. And in the light of Christmas lights, he did not look like my abuser. He looked like my son. He looked like my husband. He was my baby. Those are the only times that I got my son. And so I love Christmas babies. <laughs> they mean so much to me. Um, there's no secret that my, my son's name is Christian, which I hated at first. Cause again, it came from the toxic situation as to why we had a baby. And so I hated the name Christian, but in those moments, I realized I love your name is Christian because it starts with Christ and Christmas starts with Christ and Christmas lights start with Christ. <laughs> so, so that's a very vulnerable story. I have not told anybody. So there it is. I, oh. I someday, you know, someday that's going to be a part of my book, but anyway, so, um, at that point we had another, um, I was a little bit better. We had another baby. Um, is, he was wonderful. He was beautiful. Um, I was a little bit better on the postpartum depression. Um, it was by our third pregnancy that I was, I felt like I was okay mentally. I thought, I thought, okay, I'm now a mom. I have that hat to wear and I'm going to wear that hat proudly. I'm a wife. That's awesome. And we were pregnant with our third. And I just felt like we were piecing my life together again. It might've been with band-aids and straw, but I was surviving. I was okay. <laughs> Dare I say I was a little happy. <laughs> um, it was one of the ultrasounds. It was the one that we were going to go find a gender. My husband was the only time he's ever missed an ultrasound was the gender reveal ultrasound because he had to work, but I had all the plans in the world to surprise him with the gender and just be that optimist. Um, but I walk in and they hook up the monitor. And the next thing I know is them telling me, I'm so sorry, but there is no more heartbeat. We'll give you some time to process, but your little one is gone. So <laughs> I was left alone, which I do not do well with. And I remember distinctly feeling a fork in the road. It was, I'm done. I'm done with you, God. I've, I've pieced enough of my life where I thought we were doing good and you strip that all away. So I clearly am not loved. I clearly am not a priority to you. So goodbye. I'm done. And I was going to leave. I was on that path. I like to call it the path that rocks. <laughs> to get the hell away from God. <laughs> so, um, and I was on that path. I had already started walking down it. I said, enough is enough. You've now taken a child from me. You've messed with my first child. We are done. We are done. And I just, I started planning my life on how to be a non-member and it scared the hell out of me, but here we go. You know, I have to find maybe more happiness there. <laughs> It was a split second, a very, very split second that I heard a voice say, try one more time, one more time. And I said, no, 
nope, no thank you. And I sat there and I grieved and I mourned and I just was so lost. And I don't know what motivated me, but I just said, you've got, you've got something that's so much smaller than a, a mustard seed of faith. You have literally a speck of invisible dust God to work with. Use it wisely because I am done. And it was, it was instantaneous. <laughs> I physically felt a very warm yet firm grip on my right shoulder. I was left alone in the doctor's office and I had my eyes closed. I was like screaming internally at God and like swearing and all the messy stuff. So I didn't recognize that someone had walked in. So when the hand grasped my shoulder, I spooked and I looked behind me and there was nobody there. There was absolutely nobody there. And yet the hand was very, very softly, but firm on my shoulder. And it instantly filled me with peace. Instantly, the grieving process was over. Instantly, there was no fear. There was no, there was nothing. It was just pure joy. And, and all I heard was the word Utah. And so that's all, that's all I got. And it just, it filled me with joy. The doctors were back and I went home, had to tell my husband that we lost the baby, which was not a memory I care to ever relive again. Um, but all I told him was Utah. That's all I got. I have good memories with my grandma in Utah. I have good memories at BYU. Like maybe just Utah is like my happy word. Like maybe it's just anyway. So, um, on my way back, miscarrying the baby, um, it nearly took my life because of this blood disorder. I didn't have diagnosed back then. I almost bled out. I didn't get a blood transfusion. Um, it was, it was mayhem, but the whole time I just kept chanting Utah. It sounds crazy, but it just filled me with joy. Like I just clung on to it. Um, it was after one particular day that I was, I was really struggling and I was like, what, what is Utah for? Because why is this worth it? Like, why am I happy right now? Because I'm, I feel like I might crumble soon. Like this is kind of maybe a farce. Like maybe I'm just delusional and someday I'm going to like crash as I usually do. And I remember I was stopped at a red light and and I just had this vision and I don't claim vision. I never claimed revelation. It was just so triggering to me. It was very, it still kind of makes me iffy, but that's just trauma, that's spiritual trauma. And I was distinctly shown a poppy flower and this poppy flower was withering away and the color was dull and the ground was broken and dry and it was wilted. It was wilted over. And suddenly I saw it get watered and it was in a field of other poppies and it, it sprung to life. It bloomed right before my eyes and the ground was lush. And I mean, everything, the skies were bluer and, and all I heard was you're moving to Utah to bloom. I am uprooting you from the toxic soil you're in currently. And I am planting you in Utah, where your spiritual bloom will happen, but you have to go now. So we left. It was two months and we, we tried to sell our house, but we put our house on the market. We left and we thought we'll get a job. We'll buy a house. 
will get straight. I'm on this spiritual high. I'm going to fix this relationship with God. I'm finally going to be the person I've always wanted to be. And that was not the case. We fell head into hell itself. Even hell didn't want us there. We never found a job. We never sold our house. We never bought a new house. We became homeless. We got kicked out of the motels we were living in because our, our stuff was a fire hazard because we couldn't afford a storage unit. My son nearly died from multiple seizures from a seizure disorder. We were hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for medical care for my son. We had friends completely trash talk us, completely ruin us. We had church members that ignored us. We had, I mean, you name it, we went through it. We went through everything. We started getting comments that we were the modern day Job. At first I was offended, but then I was like, it's true. We had illness. We had friendship loss. We had, you know, all of the things we were poor as dirt. <laughs> it's just, and, and I really started questioning why, why, why this isn't supposed to help me. This is literally opposite. And so I just was like, this is dumb. By the time I had another miscarriage and then another miscarriage, I figured I must've just been delusional. That's my bad. So now we're homeless, completely lonely, <laughs> completely broken. And it was literally for nothing. And that's when I felt very distinct in my heart, look closer. And so I started, this is over a process of a few months, but I started realizing that every single thing that we were going through was building, somehow building my relationship with Christ, truly and authentically showing me the good that was coming out of all of the bad. And it, I called it my accelerated spiritual learning program. <laughs> it, it had to be laughed at because it was so obnoxious that any time that we had friends call us horrible names, any time that we couldn't afford food one day, I distinctly remember sitting on the floor because I had sold all of our furniture for food money and all we could afford was beans and rice. And because we sold the table, we sat on the floor. And I remember distinctly eating it thinking, how, where's the good in this? Like, I don't understand. And just, oh, you know what? It just, it helps me understand that the next time I have a cheeseburger, I am going to love it. I am going to thank God that I have it. And I am going to teach my kids to always be grateful. And I mean, you name the, you know, you name the lesson and I got to learn it. Um, Anyway, so it was about five years into this mess. I had a very sneaky suspicion that it was going to be seven years total, which it ended up being. But at the time we were five years in, nothing had settled. Nothing got, had gotten easier. Everything was getting worse. Everything was getting worse. And I, um, on a very particularly bad day, um, we had just survived another, um, hospital stay about a week stay, uh, again, no insurance, no state help, no job, <laughs> um, to save my son's life. Um, at that point he had fallen into a medical induced coma 
that he was supposed to come out of within two hours. Four hours, they said we'd be concerned if he didn't come out. At the five hour mark, and he wasn't coming out, they started prepping me. They said, okay, we don't know if the seizure has, has killed his brain. We don't know if the medications killed his brain, but we're gonna keep trying to wake him up. Six hours passed, seven hours passed, eight hours passed. At the eight hour mark, I knew he was gone. I knew he was gone, um, but I hoped and prayed that he wasn't. You know, I just, I had to prepare myself. I, I just, I had to prepare that he was, he was gone. Um, and at the time I was doing wedding photography, very, very cheap, just to, like I said, get, get meals on our table. And I had just finished a very um, horrible wedding very horrible bride, <laughs> but I, I earned $300. Yes. For an entire wedding, I should have earned 3000, but I took 300 cause I was desperate. And I remember my son not waking up. And the one thing he's always wanted at that time were these really expensive, but really cool themed car seats. And it was a Ninja turtle car seat and it was $150. Okay. Think about it. $300 wedding, $150 for one car seat that could have bought us three weeks worth of food we can't afford this car seat. So I would constantly turn him down. No, sorry, buddy. No, we can't do it. No, I'm so sorry. And of course my mom heart crumbling to the floor because every mom would want to buy something for their son that they love, but I couldn't. So when the eight hour mark came and I was even preparing myself that my son was gone, I just felt a distinct being say, tell him that you will buy him the car seat. And I was like, boy, I'm desperate enough. Sure. And so I remember I tickled his foot and I said, Hey buddy. And I'm in tears. I'm done. I've been up for 24 hours. I said, bud, if you wake up, not only will I buy you a car seat, I will buy your little brother a Ninja Turtle car seat, but please, please wake up. Cause mom can't do it without you. It was two minutes later. He flutters his eyes open. First thing out of his mouth, Ninja Turtle car seat, mom. <laughs> Done. Wow. We bought him that night. Bought him that night. And how Amazon worked was it was Easter morning. As if God had instructed it himself, knock on the door, car seats came Easter morning. So <laughs> that's all they got for Easter. <laughs> so anyway so that's like one of the stories you know and it, it just kept you know it kept getting worse but ripening with age and and I became a woodworker out of another particularly bad day someone had judged me online had completely crucified my my character where it was it just why I wasn't doing anything wrong there was nothing wrong with anything they had misinterpreted something and and they decided to blast me and it's a whole long story, but it broke me. It just proved that I was not worthy of friendship. I was not worthy in general. And I had proof, look, this person and all of her followers, which happened to be all of my friends agreed with her because they were commenting on how they, you know, it was just horrible. And that day I just felt like I need something for me. I need self-care. I have no money. I have nothing to do self-care with. And Christ again, instructing me to do something that made absolutely no sense. Absolutely none. 
And that day I heard, you need to build a table. And I said, what? <laughs> now I know a little bit how Noah felt building a ship. Cause I was like, I have never built, I have never taken a wood shop class, like nothing. I, I don't even know if I have a drill. <laughs> anyway, long story short, I built this table. It was beautiful. I decorated it. That's one of my passions. I loved it. We had another seizure episode where we had a $2,000 ambulance bill hit us. I sold the table. Didn't even have her for two weeks. I sold the table for $200 and after I sold it, I had a lady out of the blue say, I want one. Can you make me one? And then her friend came and said, can you make me one? And it just, it ignited. And I started paying for our bills. It actually felt good to pay bills. At this point, my husband finally found a job. It was, it was very, very low pay, um, which is so weird that he didn't get a job. This man has education and experience like he is he is a rock star nothing and so it, again it was part of the story but um so I started building and you're still in Utah at this point right I was still in Utah okay. yep still long, in Utah how long have you guys been there at this point I think at that point it was it was right after the seizure episode so it was probably like yeah five five and a half years at so that you've point been in Utah for about five years uh-huh yep that's a long time to go it through. was yeah. And there was no end in sight whatsoever. I was thinking tomorrow's going to be it. We're going to, we're going to get successful and find God. And this will be a joke. <laughs> this will just be an inside joke. You know? And it just never came. Um, Did you ever so, feel like you should go back or like give up or were you just like, Nope, we're here. Oh yeah. Oh, every day, every day. I was like, this is pathetic. This is so stupid. Like I felt so like split brain, like this is great because look at all I'm learning too why, why, what is the point? Like, what are we doing? Like, and there was many, many swear words intermixed on that one. I'm very fluent in F-bombing, especially F-bombing God. Unfortunately, I got very fluent. <laughs> so, so I had at this point, fast forwarding, I had been woodworking for um, about a year and a half and I got into the, the, what are they called? Boutique circuit, which is where you make a lot of money making homemade things. And so I started boutiquing where I sold tables and I sold these little crappy things. I look back at what I built then and I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> but it was making me money. Um, then um, it was December 5th, a day after my son's birthday, the one that has seizures. Uh, I was at a boutique. I made $350, which was big because I only sold two things. And um, and I had to finish one of those things to send out on the following Monday. That was Saturday night. And I said, I'm going to finish it Saturday night to respect Sunday and not work on Sunday. So I went straight from the boutique to my garage, which was a detached garage. And um, I didn't tell my husband where I was. Mistake number one. And I closed both garage doors because we were in a, an apartment complex at the time and loud saws at eight o'clock at night. I didn't want to disrupt anyone, even though we were detached. I just didn't know. I didn't want to get in trouble. So closed both garage doors, mistake number two, <laughs> and I got to work and it was only three cuts, three or four cuts. And I figured five minutes, be back upstairs, tell my husband about the money we made, blah, blah, blah. 
um, I was cutting with my safest saw, moved to um, another very safe saw. And that's when everything went south. Uh, I, something went wrong. The, the saw malfunctioned. I didn't know what happened, but it caught my wood at an angle and it threw it into the wall. And I remember distinctly thinking, crap, I don't want to have to get charged for that because we don't have money. So all I thought was crap, I have to patch that hole and uh, double crap. I don't have any more wood. I have to go back and buy some, which means the order's going to be delayed. Dang it. Like I was so mad. What I didn't know had happened was the unthinkable until I saw the very tip of my nail polish on the floor, which was weird. I just, you know how your brain slows down in trauma? Like it was the weirdest thing to look down and see my nail polish on the floor that was once on my nail. And I was like, that is so weird. And so I lift up my hand and I was missing two fingers. Gone, gone. More abruptly, my pinky was gone. The, the ring finger was, was dangling, but it was there-ish. Um, and it, I, it, no, I don't do blood. I don't do gore. And there I was looking just straight through my fingers. Like it just, they, anyway, I'll spare you the details. It was gross. So <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, what happened? How did this happen? Why is this happening to me? Are you serious? God, are you for real? Like, <laughs> you've just taken away woodworking. <laughs> I, was, I was a hot mess. Um, but, but the situation was serious. And so I remember thinking, I have to call someone, I'm going to pass out. What I didn't know at the time, but could have guessed was I severed an artery. And so I knew I had minutes, if not seconds to call someone. And so I called 911, except for I couldn't dial them. I could not dial 911 because I had held my hand with my other hand. And so blood was all over my right hand. My left hand was covered. And I grabbed my phone. I was wearing white pants. They were not white in the end. <laughs> so I grabbed, grabbed my phone and I went to dial 911 and it slipped and it wouldn't dial. And I felt myself passing out and I, I couldn't scream. My adrenaline like cut my cords. It was the weirdest thing. I couldn't scream. I couldn't breathe. Um, all I could do was think. And I remember it split second. I remember that time in the, the, I want to, <laughs> ultrasound. I almost said autopsy. No, the ultrasound room <laughs> when I was screaming at God and he, he was there. And so I said, Oh, I know how this works. God, I need you now, now. And 911 operator, how may I help you? And I'm like, what the heck? What am I questioning for? Hi, <laughs> I need help. But I explained what happened except for they couldn't hear me because I couldn't talk. They couldn't understand what I was saying at all. And I couldn't force it out. I was trying to say my name. I was trying to tell them where I lived. I was desperate to get help, but my vocal cords were cut. I, I mean, so at that point I am feverishly like praying to God, help me, help me, help me. And next thing I heard the, the woman on the phone that was a 911 operator, she's a woman. The next thing I heard was a man's voice. It was not on the phone. There was a man who was on my right side. And all I heard was stand up slowly, breathe in, 
breathe out, find a tourniquet. I said, that's smart. So I go and I get an extension cord and a rag and I, I tie it off. Next was get a rag to cover your hand. And I said, right. So I go and I split second was like, I don't have a rag. In fact, I know I don't have a clean rag because I have it on my shopping list to get clean stain rags. I can't put a dirty stain rag on my finger, like, or what's left of it. And it said dig. And so I dug and there was a pristine white rag sitting right there. And I said, I have no time to question. I grabbed it. I wrapped my hand in it. It was the middle of December in Utah. It had just downpoured of snow. I am shaking from adrenaline, but I am shaking because I'm freezing to death. I didn't have a coat on. <laughs> I was stupid. Um, at this point, I was shaking so severely I was going to pass out. So I heard the man say, elevate your feet, lay down, elevate your feet. So I went and I sat right where, right where I hit. And um, I elevated my feet. And at that point I had opened the door. There was another instruction to say, open the door. And I did. And I, that's when it was elevate your feet. And all of a sudden there was a bucket of wood, that scrap wood. And then this bed that I was going to refinish right behind me. And it was at the perfect angle to lay back and elevate my feet. At that point I heard, um, like watch out or, or like, it was like a warning feeling. And I was like, okay, something's about to happen. Maybe I'm passing out. So I tried to tell the 9 operator again, it still wasn't coming out. Um, and all of a sudden the pain hit. I mean, it hit and it hit hard. And I remember passing out from the pain alone and remembering thinking, I don't know if this is pain or if this is blood loss, but I won't wake up if I fall asleep. And so I prayed, I was like, keep me awake, keep me awake. Cause at this point it was so heavy. It was not like any type of sleep I've ever felt. And I've been tired. I'm a mom of five. I have been tired. This wasn't that it was a heaviness that I could not bat off. And I just remember being so scared that if I fell asleep, I wouldn't wake up at this point. I had just given birth to our son, my third after three miscarriages, we finally gave birth to a little son. He was only four and a half months old. And I remember thinking, if I die, he won't have a mom. You have to stay awake. And at that point, I'm pretty much screaming at God, keep me awake, keep me awake. And that's when I heard an angel. I call it an angel. I don't know what it was, but there was someone standing on my left side, couldn't see her couldn't feel her other than knowing that she was there and she started singing abide with me tis eventide my favorite rendition in the exact way that I loved hearing it and she was singing the next thing I heard was the man on my right say sing along focus on the words and I said oh okay and I did I remember singing out loud thinking this is weird but then saying my vocal cords are back and I told the 911 operator, this is my name. This is where I'm at. This is what happened. And, and then I kept singing. <laughs> I want to hear my 911 operator like recording so bad. <laughs> I, I want to hear it so bad, but I'm too scared. I'm a chicken. <laughs> anyway, so I sang along and that kept me awake. It kept me alert and it kept the, the pain a little bit at bay. I still felt it, but I was so concerned with, hey, who's singing to me? who is this? I want to know who this is because they have to know me. They have to know that this is my rendition. Like this is my song. 
um, at that point, um, I heard two people walking by and I, I heard the man say, yell for help. And I said, right. At this point, I'm recognizing this is Christ. This is Christ, but I don't know who you are. I think I know who it is now, um, but we can get into that later. Christ was saying, there's help coming, yell for help, which I did. I said, hey, I, I need help. I cut my finger off. Help me, help me. The 911 operator is like, is someone there to help? And I said, I'm trying to get their attention. And I caught their attention. I, I heard them talking about Emily's birthday party. And I said, help me, help me. They had cut talking. They had listened. They were listening. So I kept talking, help me, help me, please help me. I cut my finger off. I think I'm dying. And they weren't coming and they weren't coming. And all of a sudden I hear them pick up the conversation about Emily's birthday party. And they walked right past my door. No. <laughs> And I just remember thinking, oh yeah, oh yeah, you idiot, you forgot. You're not worth crap. Obviously, you're not worth saving. And I tear, I just tailspin, tailspin. The reality of losing two fingers came. The reality that I was dying came. The reality that, I mean, every reality and like just the guilt. I mean, it was eating me alive. And I just remember the sleep was getting heavier and heavier. And I got to a point where I was just like, how do I get out of this? How do I get out? I heard two more people walk by. The song is still being sung. Two more people were walking by. At this point, I said, I'm not losing them. I shriek. And it was a a sound no human being has ever made in this world. And I remember it was so haunting. It spooked me thinking, is this literally what I sound like right now? So I knew that I got their attention because what, who would hear that, you know, that sound and think, oh, everyone's fine. <laughs> no. And so I remember screaming for help, screaming for help. And they too just walked past my door. At this point, at this point was the lowest I've ever been. At this point, I said, take me now. I'm done. Because I'm obviously not worth saving. And you obviously don't care enough to actually provide help. <laughs> so just take me out. I'm done. And uh, the song got louder. So loud that it was ringing. It was ringing my ears. And all I heard was the man say, sing every line. And the line that I had just started singing was abide with me, tis even tide. Like it was, the night is getting dark. And I remember those words pierced my heart. Yeah, yeah, the night's getting dark. I'm getting dark again. Like I don't wanna be here and all that. And anyway, um, at that point, adversary is trying to beat me and I had, um, I had a realization. It was a couple of months before the accident. I had felt a random prompting to play violin. I hadn't played for, I think, seven years at that point. I had played 10 years throughout elementary school, junior high, high school, and then a little bit of college. And I can't say I was the best violinist, but I loved it. But when my friend's house was robbed, she was a violin teacher at the time. I gave her my violin again, out of a prompting and that was years before. So a few months before the accident, I had this random prompting one day, please play your violin. And I kind of batted off thinking, wow, I must just miss violin. It's, you know, whatever. And a second prompting came a couple of weeks later, please play your violin. 
And I said, okay, here's the deal. I don't have a violin. I don't have money to pay for a violin. So this is, this has got to be my, like, this is just my thought. Then um, it was two weeks before the accident. It was in November. So this time frame <laughs> that I got a third and final, very distinct prompting. Violin music is needed in your home. Please play your violin. And I just remember thinking, I have, I don't have two pennies to rub together. together. Violins are, are so expensive. I don't have anyone that I know that I can borrow one from. Like, this is so bizarre. But if you stop pestering me, <laughs> I will do whatever I can. I will read sheet music. I will brush up on whatever I, like, whatever I can do being as desperate as we are. Like, would that suffice? And it did. He never prompted me again. So fast, you know, fast forward to two weeks, I'm sitting in the darkest of dark with two of my most vital violin playing fingers had just got cut off. And I, and I just, I adversary won that battle. I just said, why, why would you, that is what I call cruel. That is cruel God to have me so invested in that prompting and you not only take it away from me, you make it very abundantly clear that I will never be able to play violin ever again. And I, I mean, anyway, at that point I was hearing sirens. I wanted to, I wanted help because I was in so much pain and I couldn't fall asleep as much as I tried. I couldn't, um, we had probably 30 people. It felt like 30 was probably only 10, but we had like 30 people rush into my garage. They put me on a gurney. They asked me if I had all my bits and pieces, which I did. It was in the palm of my hand. What was left of my finger. It was not a finger in the end. It did not look like a finger. Um, so I was processing knowing that it wasn't savable. Um, they took me to a hospital 45 minutes away. We had a hospital five minutes away. And I remember in the ambulance saying, why are we not there yet? Why are we not there yet? And can you please give me a nerve block? Give me medication, knock me out. I am in so much pain emotionally, but physically I, I please. And they said, we cannot give you any medication. We have to see what nerve damage is done. And we have to take you to the very best hospital, which is 45 minutes away. Anyway, fast forward. I get there. My husband has been notified. Someone went up to him and, and said, Hey, we've got a girl. She says, this is her apartment. She doesn't know her name. Are you the husband? Are you like, can you, she's cut fingers off, come to the hospital. Like that's all he got. So he comes to the hospital and, um, and I'm there and I'm, I'm wrecked. I'm, I'm done. I'm asking, is it savable? Can you please fix my fingers? Like anybody, anything. I had EMTs, firefighters, police officers, nurses, x-ray specialists, and then my surgeon all tell me it's bad, Melissa. It is really bad. It's not savable. And it just sunk me lower and I just couldn't manage life. Like I just couldn't. And there was this distinct prompting right before they put me to sleep to go into surgery to clean up, you know, the amputation to, to make it pretty, even though it's not savable. And I turned to my surgeon and it was almost like it wasn't me. And I turned to him and I said, 
can you just try? Can you just try to save them? And it was like someone just flipped the light on. He said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to try. And off I went. And, and I woke up and I remember I woke up in the OR and I still had the breathing tube in. And, and I remember thinking, don't let me hear it. I don't want to hear that they couldn't save it. God, do not let me hear the doctors. And he didn't answer that prayer. I heard the doctor and the nurse and the doctor said, well, we reattached both fingers, but I've been in this industry for 50 years. This man was old. <laughs> this is the worst degree of cut I've ever experienced. Her body is going to reject her fingers. She has a 99.9% .9 chance that her body is going to reject the fingers. So we need to ease this information. We have to be very cautious with how to present this information to her. And I just, I was done. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. Like I just, they reeled me into my, my room. My husband was standing there waiting for me. And I remember distinctly telling him, don't, don't talk to me. Don't tell me about God. Don't just, just turn on the TV. And that's what he did. He turned on the TV and I remember watching, I think SpongeBob was on. <laughs> and I just remember crying. And I mean, this sorrowful, dead to me type of just defeat crying. And um, anyway, at that time when I was feeling this, this darkest I've ever been, it was like someone lit a match in my heart and the darkness could not overtake this, this very faint, but very strong flame. It wasn't mine because I was trying to extinguish it. I said, no, God, no, you have no place in my heart. You have nothing here. Leave me alone and take your fire burning with you. And he wouldn't do it. And it got stronger and stronger and stronger. And all I knew was that it was just pure, pure joy. The most purest of joy I have ever experienced in my life and it wasn't me causing it there was nothing around me that said I I'm joyful right now so it wasn't me like I can still feel it in my heart like it was just it just overtook my being and in that moment I turned to my husband and I said I'm gonna love this I'm gonna love this someday but I don't love it now and he's like oh okay all right <laughs> and then again, they weren't even my words. They came out of my mouth and it said, I need a blessing, but it can't be from you. And I don't know why there's someone out there that God has called to give me a blessing. Find him. We found him. He came, he gave me a blessing and it, it went along the lines of heavenly father is very aware of you, very aware of your struggle. Melissa, your fingers will not leave your hand. So say I, God, you will continue in woodworking. Your talents will not be hindered by this accident. You will love your hand and see it as beautiful. Melissa, you are whole. And I, that joy that was growing, it just exploded. It exploded. <laughs> so at that time, I didn't know what it meant because my surgeon was still telling me, don't knock your finger, don't clean, do not do anything with water, nothing, you are bed rest. 
I had a three and a half or four and a half more month old baby. And I was on bed rest with two other kids running around. It was, it was hell, but he was also telling me, do not take physical therapy. It, you will lose your finger if you do th- physical therapy. But on the flip side, Christ was physically telling me, take physical therapy, take it now. And so I'm like, what do I do? So unfortunately I held off on physical therapy, but when, when, (laughs) when the promptings turned into shoving me out the door, I listened. (laughs) So I went to physical therapy. I was there for six months. It was hell in a handbasket. My finger never left my hand. It didn't break. It didn't go off. It was one year to the day that I stood in front of my congregation with my $60 white violin, Amazon special. And I played nearly flawlessly, Abide With Me to Zeventide. And right then, right then, I knew that there was no way in hell that I could ever question the atonement of Christ or Christ himself ever again because he took two fingers that were not savable and he saved them and physical therapy got it to the exact angle even though it's still bent you can tell my fingers are both bent at 90 degree angles and one is at like I think it's 104 degree it's over it doesn't impede me playing and I play I go to firesides. I want to do more firesides. I do podcasts. I, um, I go to every congregation that, that allows me and, and I explain the atonement of Christ. And it has brought me so much joy. <laughs> it has brought me so much joy. And, and maybe we can do another podcast because I know we're out of time, but the faith crisis came a few years later where it sounds like it's competing And at first I thought it was competing with my testimony of, you know, I call it my pinky promise because I was promised my pinky and I'm not allowed to break pinky promises because my finger literally is at a 90 degree (laughs) and it ain't moving. (laughs) So, So when my faith crisis came, I started panicking that it was undoing everything. But after I went through it and I started really digging deep, understanding what needs to be clawed away from the testimony I had the the toxic traits of it um, linked to the toxic culture I started seeing that not only is it is it helping my testimony it's literally blooming me even more it's not your standard I know the church is true testimony anymore it's I would like to believe that the church is true I would also really like to believe that you know, this, that, you know, fill in the blanks, but it is, I know for a certain that Christ is there and that he will never leave us. And that's where I'm at with my faith crisis. Everything else is in question. Every possible thing is in question, but every possible thing is okay to be questioned that it takes faith to doubt. That is something that keeps repeating in my head that it takes faith to doubt because doubt helps us strip away what we don't need and helps grow what we do need. So 
and I can get all into that, you know, and, and, and all the self-love that's brought me on that journey and, and all the goodness. I mean, I know my pinky story takes up most of the time, but there it is. <laughs> there it is. So I feel like you told your story so well. I feel like whenever I hear stories like these, I just want to be like, but how, how are you not like just, and I guess you mentioned at some points in your life you are, but it's like, how are you just not so mad <laughs> that all these yeah. things happen to you? I mean, starting at such a young age, like, I feel like so much less has happened to people and they are, you know, better for their whole yeah. life. Yeah. And you know what? And I felt that way too, where I'm like, so much crap has taken place in my life. Mm-hmm. And and I should be angry. And I have been angry. I mean, very angry to, I told you I'm very fluent in F-bombing God. And, and I, unfortunately I still am. There are definite days that I'm like, really dude, really? <laughs> have you not learned your lesson? <laughs> so, but I guess part of, part of the passion I have for listening to people at first, I thought it would do the opposite of listening to people and hearing quote unquote, lesser stories that caused anger that it would, it would make me feel resentful, but it's done the opposite. For some reason, it's done the opposite. Listening to people's stories, some worse, some equal, some lesser, the way that God shows up in everyone's life, whether they want him there or not, is what I pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And, And it's literally the string that connects us all there. We are all connected even if we're not in the same faith, especially if we're not in the same faith, if we're not in the same stage of life, the same trauma, that there is, there's this, I don't even know what to call it. I, I'm still trying to figure out what it is, but it's the way that God shows up. Yeah. And it is very unique to that individual, but very beautifully the same. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I need to, I need to ponder on that more because I've, I've mentioned it before to people and I'm like, I don't know what it is, but I want, I crave to hear more about how people have lived their lives. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think one thing I'm learning is that, um, it just, we each have different things in our lives and we can handle different things and we can navigate different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you went through so much and you just handled it like you just step by step walked us through how you like overcame that crisis of having your fingers cut off and and it's I think sometimes people hear that and think well I could never do that but it's like in the moment I yeah I love that you walked us through like step by step because I think in the moment of crisis you just do it because you have no other choice you have to. yeah survival mode you just you have to I look back and I still have like horrible flashbacks. Like we were watching a crime mystery movie yesterday and someone had like a missing ring finger. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I definitely have those times where I look back and be like, but how, how did I survive? Like, how did I make it out alive in the physical realm, but the spiritual realm and the emotional realm, like none of it makes any sense. None whatsoever. And yet I would never do it again. <laughs> but I would do it all over again at the same time. How is that possible? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I do, I, when I listen, when I listen to people who are angry still, I let them, 
I let them be angry. I don't be like, oh no, no, you'll, you'll survive. You'll be fine. Cause I did. No, 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 That doesn't serve nobody. Cause I would have knocked you out till left field. If you told me I was going to survive, I'd be, I, it would have been ugly. So I, I don't do that to people. I say, pay attention to what you're learning. Pay attention to the bloom that God has created for you. Everyone blooms. Blooming sometimes happens at night for certain flowers. Blooming happens over months time. Blooming sometimes happens instantly. You know, I mean, and this is of course in, in your story and in your trials and just try to find the little things. And that's what I try to do when I listen to people who are angry or say that I should be angry. And, and I'm like, I have to pay attention to the little things. Cause if I don't, I'm going to be angry and, and that's okay. I can, I can feel those emotions, but, but I survived. I'm okay. I'm not going to tell you you're going to survive because that's none of my business, <laughs> but you're going to find joy along the way. And unfortunately, or fortunately, my story's great. And I will share it because that is my passion and I keep learning from it. But just because I went through it doesn't mean that I have traded the darkness that I've already experienced. I still experience it. I still fall into it. There are times when I want nothing to do with God, but know that he's always there. So I, oh, I call it my Hercules hair. If you watch Hercules and the witches pull up his hair to cut his soul, it turns to gold. It, you can't cut it. I earned that Hercules hair. And that will never get cut. I, I earned that. God gave that to me through my finger experience, my violin experience, through all of my trauma, my spiritual manipulation history, all of my spiritual trauma. I earned the Hercules hair to never be cut. But that does not mean the adversary tries to keep cutting it, which means everything is stripped. Once again, everything is dark. Everything is lonely. So I have the highest of highs at a sacrifice to know the lowest of lows, but I get to teach the highest of highs and that keeps me going. So I say to those that have mediocre spirituality, good for you. <laughs> good for you because then you don't know the lowest of lows of low. So if that helps. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I, I really enjoyed our time and I um, I just appreciate your, your vulnerability, your honesty. And, hey. and I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart and wish you the best. And thank every you. you. Thank you. One and thing. Oh, one thing I, you asked me a question. What would I tell the listeners? Is that was the yes. question? What would you, what would you say? Yeah. What do you so, wish everybody knew? Everybody knows. Okay. So what I want everybody to know, even though this wasn't even close to being on the topic is you have worth. 100% right now, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to gain it. You don't have to lose weight for it. You don't have to eat in a certain way for it. You do not have to talk a certain way for it. You have worth. It is in you. You just get to figure it out. You get to figure out where it's at, where it lies. Usually what I have found talking to people and in my own life is it lies exactly where your soul belongs. If you like traveling, girl, go get it. Go travel. 
your self-worth will follow you. It'll start becoming unburied self-love, self-worth, just keep doing you be authentic as possible. Even if you get in trouble for it, I speak from experience, the right people with that you. are meant in your life will stay. Your vibe will attract your tribe. If they don't want to be a part of your vibe, say goodbye because they are not meant to be. They are only going to drag your self-worth and self-love down. You are an incredible person. It is all in you. You do not have to go earn it. It's right in your heart as we speak. So there's that. <laughs> well, with that, we'll wrap up this lovely episode of Laws and Grace. We've been speaking with Melissa Miller. We appreciate your time and your story. Um, as always, you can follow us on Laws and Grace, where we'll be posting updates and promoting her thing. Melissa, if people want to reach out to you, how, how's the best way to get in touch with you or, or continue hearing yeah. your story? I do have an interior design page that is quickly morphing into a self-love teaching page, mm -hmm. which is cleverly named what? The Shiplap. <laughs> I will change that name someday. I am on there occasionally. I'm, I'm stepping away from social media as I focus more on myself and my family, but I am there. I message people. Um, so I can, I can give you the name so you can write it down. Um, but again, Instagram at what the ship lap. So All right, well, perfect. We'll put that in the show notes. And um, thank you so much. And we hope our listeners have enjoyed this episode of Laws and Grace. Follow us on Instagram. And we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>